Hi everyone, welcome back to The Lila Joe Show and welcome to season three. I'm Lila. I'm an elite ice dancer and a psychology student. I'm also very curious about people and the fascinating stories that we all have to tell. So today, please welcome my guest to share their story. Today's conversation is with Emily Bryden. Emily was a member of the Canadian Alpine Ski Team for 13 years. Over those years, she represented Canada at three Olympics and achieved nine World Cup medals. Overcoming adversity and her unparalleled drive motivated and inspired much of her career. Emily has a passion for empowerment and does so through mentoring numerous athletes and young professionals, and most significantly as founder and CEO of the Emily Bryden Youth Foundation, which supports and provides opportunity to disadvantaged youth in the Elk Valley so that they can achieve their dreams, as she did hers. After retiring, Emily had a, shall we say, unconventional journey in education, which I'll let her share with you. Now, Emily works for BP, one of the major global oil companies, where she brings her expertise and unique insight across North America, Asia, and the UK. Emily is a force to be reckoned with, and through trial, tribulation, and triumph, she shares such wisdom with us in today's conversation. Inspired by her late father, Emily is committed to being a lifelong learner and is eager to grow and evolve in any way that she can, no matter the challenge. She said it herself, life is a series of mountain peaks. Each one is different from the last and each is unique in its own way. Sometimes you just need an equipment change. Emily, welcome to the show. Hello, Lila. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Now, my interviews are structured like workouts. We start off with the warm up, then we move on into a long period of high intensity questioning and then finish it all up with a cool down. So how does that sound to you as a professional athlete? That's perfect. It's actually something I can relate to. So I'm ready and excited. Great. And you were born and raised in Fernie, BC, in the Canadian Rockies, which is also the backdrop to so many of my childhood memories. So I thought we'd make our warm-up Fernie-themed, because why not? Perfect. Right? So mountain biking or river rafting? Mountain biking. What is the best cup of coffee in Fernie? Oh, goodness gracious me, that's a tricky one. So right now I'm going to go with Freshies. Okay, I'm happy you said that because I think I agree. Yay! <laughs> what is your favorite ski run in Fernie? Well, so this is also a tricky one because if I tell you, then everyone's going to find it. So it comes with a caveat that if I tell you, you can't use it. So okay. it's called Lone Fur. Okay, but I'm not allowed to use it. No. Okay, I think we have a deal. Because those are for me. Fine, fair enough. I'll let you have that, sure. <laughs> Other than Fernie, what is your favorite ski hill? You know, I so after I retired from skiing, I kind of took a bit of a hiatus, and I fell in love with skiing again in Japan in a place called Naseko. And so that place really holds a place close to my heart now. I've heard the skiing in Japan is incredible. Amazing. Champagne powder. Oh. It's it's actually similar snow to, to Fernie in the Rockies, but it's like this beautiful combination of, it's not super commercial, but there's amazing skiing and terrain, and it's like the culture is so unique. I love it. Okay, I need to put that on my bucket list. Most definitely. What is your favorite Fernie slang? 
oh gosh, I'm a bit rusty. So I don't know. Oh, what is that? A good one is like no friends on powder days. Although I don't necessarily agree with it because I kind of like having a buddy to share in all the fun. Early morning (laughs) hike or late night s'mores at the campground? Early morning hike. I love the mornings. Mm. There's something so special about being out there when no one else is really up yet and getting to take in the nature. Yeah, exactly. I actually just did a quick walk with the dog this morning and it's like you can hear the birds waking up. I don't know. It's just a perfect way to like clear your mind and start a day. I did a walk right before this too. So we're on the same page. Love it. What is something that only those closest to you know about you? Hmm. I th- probably that I have an introverted side to me. I think most people, when they meet me, think I'm pretty extroverted and yeah. like go, go, go all the time. I think there's only a few people that understand that I have this introverted, quiet side to me. And it's probably like a little bit reclusive. That's why I always like come back to the mountains to rejuvenate mm. and things like that. Mm. And what is your order at the Rocky Mountain Chocolate Factory? Well, anything that has dark chocolate and has almonds in it is 100% my game. So mm. I love that bark. Oh my gosh. That's something I miss. Mm-hmm. And I, I agree with you on the dark chocolate front. That's the best in my opinion. And you don't feel guilty and it tastes good and you don't need a lot of it. Everyone's happy. Yeah. It's just a win-win-win win, win, win. situation. <laughs> All right. Are you warm? That's our warm-up complete. Yep. Yep. Successfully warm. Ready to go. Let's All get right. into the tough ones. Let's get into the workout. So I always start <laughs> with my guest's childhood because I'd love to understand your upbringing and the foundation that you have in your life. So let's start with Fernie once again. It's very much a hidden gem and is such a special town. So for those listening who aren't familiar with the name, how would you describe the spirit of Fernie? Yeah, Fernie is like a little magical gem in the mountains that has a combination of, it's like uh, the salt of the earth people who love nature and the environment. They are adventurous. Um, and entrepreneurial, but they somehow found a way to, especially nowadays, they choose to live here. Everyone here, it's like they've chosen to live here and they find a way to balance work and life. And because of that, you have a lot of people who support the community, a lot of people who want the betterment of the community. Obviously, over time, tourism has kind of picked up, but it hasn't lost its soul and it hasn't lost its passion. There's a lot of history here, but it's all based on community, I feel like. So let's say you are getting your morning coffee at Freshies and a backpacker comes in who stumbled across the town and has no idea where he is. Where would you guide him to go and do next? Well, first off, I would probably tell him he's never going to leave because most of the people that are here now are people who came for a week or a season and they just haven't left. And so... I think, you know, if you're coming for the winter, it's like you go to the pub or you go to the Grizz Bar, you start meeting people. Working at um, the ski hill is awesome. There's amazing, like, houses of people, random transient workers that you rent rooms at. And I was like, just get into that community because that is where it all starts. And that's where you build your little group and you keep going. Um, In the summers, I haven't spent much time here in the summer since I was a kid. I don't know if it's a bit different, but... There's so many like mountain biking trails now and mountain biking like little groups and running groups and things like that. So that's definitely a way to get into it. Fly fishing is hugely popular here. So if you like fly fishing, that's something you should definitely do. In terms of where to stay, luckily I've always had a house. So I've never, like my childhood home, so I've never had to 
to uh, think about where to stay. But there's a hostel here, and I think that's where most people actually start. You, you like, could always hostel, uh, pitch a tent. You learn your ropes, and then you figure out, you find your group, and you find your house. Yeah, and you could pitch a tent at the campground in the meantime, too. Oh, my gosh. It's the most beautiful campground I've ever seen. Like, actually, during this time of COVID, a lot of the locals have been camping there. It's so funny. It's like Staycation. you go through the campsite, you're like, don't you have a house in town? But it's just that beautiful. <laughs> How was a typical day of adventure spent as a child in Fernie? Oh, it's like it's just a playground. I feel like growing up, I, I grew up without a television and I grew up in a log house on 10 acres of land. So I had a lot to play with and I was kind of forced to play outside. And so I think, uh, you know, there's the structured activities that I did. I mountain biked and hiked and I played team sports. And so you're kind of always out there adventuring with your friends or your family. But there's also like fort building and huckleberry picking and these random things that you kind of find yourself doing um, on the weekends or after school. And I remember most of my memories are of like in the winter, it's like skiing with my friends and whether it was on like a ski team or whether it was just like this group of kids being ragamuffins all over the, the mountain or in the summers, it was like camping and hiking as a family um, or with my friends. I think it's evolved now, but I would say I did the same sort of things with my friends growing up, just not in such a structured way or there wasn't such infrastructure, I guess, like the trail systems and things like that, but it was the same sort of stuff that we did. I think my mom used to collect snakes by the river. Oh, really? So maybe, I, I don't know if I'd recommend that one, but that was something. I'm going to pass on that. That was something to do. And as you said, you were raised in this log home that your parents made themselves. And I'm wondering what kind of environment was created within these wooden walls that set you on the path to achieve greatness in your life? Well, that's a, that's a big question. It feels like we're into the heavy reps now. Yes. Um, I, I think that... I, I just grew up in this home that was like incredibly, it felt safe, it felt warm, um, nurturing, but I didn't realize that growing up. I actually was like, oh my God, I live in a log house, it's freezing in the winters. I, like I saw the negative sides of it, but I think it just created this amazing environment for me to grow into kind of the person that I am today and, and what's important to me, I think the house is built with love. My parents built it. I think you can feel it when you come in here. And I, I think because it was a an ever-evolving house, like because they built it with their own hands, it took years and years and years. And so kind of watching that process um, as, it, as it evolved. Like when I was a kid, we had dirt in the basement. And when we got cement, that was a big deal. And Whoa. so little things like that, you learn what's important, actually. And what you what you actually need to have a happy life is not always all the materialistic things that everyone else thinks. Mm -hmm. And so I think it taught me a little bit about that. I think it taught me a lot, like the house and my parents taught me the importance of home. Um, so in all of our craziness in life and all the things that we adventure on and succeed doing or fail doing, that home is a very important element. You always need that safety or that comfort to know that there's a home there for you. And I. I feel very lucky for that. I don't, not everyone gets that privilege to have that. And so for me, just knowing I always had a home was really important. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, but also like to this day, I always feel like I have a, a place to come home. And end up for quarantine for much longer than planned. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. So I've been here over four months. I've not spent this much time in 
this home since I was in high school. Yeah, it's the when I found out about, well, when COVID was starting, I currently live in Chicago. This is where I wanted to come. And, you know, I have, I feel very uh, fortunate that I got to come here and spend time in Fernie and spend time in this house and be able to be in nature and balance my work and my personal life. It's been amazing. It is a true little sanctuary. Good little uh, refilling of the mind, body, and spirit for sure. Love it. What values did your parents demonstrate that you were determined to integrate into your own character? So I, I, it's a really good question. And I think I'm still trying to like figure it out because you often don't even realize that you are exhibiting certain characteristics or have certain values. You just kind of adopt them from people around you or people like whether it's your parents or your mentors or your friends. I think that there's something about tenacity and like the willingness to kind of just persistently go in in search or in purpose of something even against all odds and then I think the other thing is that I grew up we didn't have a lot of money but I sure didn't know that and I never felt that I was lacking in anything and so that constant reminder about it's really up to you um, what makes you happy and it's in your control and just kind of having that courage to be true to that and not get caught up in all the other noise Mm -hmm. and then I think my mom has taught me a lot about balance and like the choice to be happy and the choice to kind of move on and to have balance in your life so when my my dad died when I was 18 and I just watching her go through that process and choosing to live and then every day making that a choice and to find the best in it and to, to make an impact I think really inspired me and and set me on a course that I still hold true to today. And then I think the other thing is adventure. Like both of my parents are are adventurous. My dad was adventurous and my mom, like she got on a boat from England and came to Canada. That's not adventurous, I don't know what is. And so I think that that desire to always seek new things and to experience new things and to not just become complacent in your life and sit down and do nothing, I think is is something that is very much inside of me today. Oh my gosh, what an incredible example to have in your life. Those are all just such amazing qualities and mindsets to live with. And I I can attest to the fact that you definitely possess those. And um, well, it's it's just really lovely to hear. Thank you. I would say it's not, it's it, the things like with values and, and ethos and all that sort of stuff, it's like you're not always true to them. No. But I think that they're your guiding light, right? And so right. you have times in your life where you deviate and then you know you've deviated and you're like, well, so how do I get back? And so I think that's also a big part of of life's journey is that you, ha- you have to stay true to who you are, but knowing that you're going to go off path. And sometimes those lessons when you go off path are exactly what you need to kind of reaffirm that guiding light, like what's going to bring you back to that and hold you true and authentic to that. Now, I'm really interested about the concept of choice and choosing to be happy and choosing how you want to show up in your life. And it's a common theme in all of my interviews so far, actually. So when you deviate from the path of happiness or you find yourself down in the dumps a little, what do you do to then recenter and to make that firm choice again? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the first thing is acknowledge that you've deviated. And sometimes that's so hard because you're like, you're in your own head or you're in your own situation that you don't realize that you've deviated. And so whenever I'm kind of real, make that realization, I actually write down 
my guiding lights, kind of my, my ethos, or I have a book that I just write down things that are important to me and things that I want to aspire to, or if I'm looking for a change, like if I'm looking for a career change, or if I'm looking for a personal change, I'll write down what I want to change. And then I kind of sense check those against my, you know, my, my guiding lights, let's call them. And, and that just helps me be accountable. I think, right, for me, writing things down is accountable. Mm -hmm. And then you have to mull on them. Like, so what does this mean? How does it show up? What activity or what action do I want to take against those? And I always think about my life in pillars. Like I have a career pillar and I have a, a personal pillar and then I have like a wellness pillar in a way. And so you need two of those pillars to be pretty strong at any one time. I think you can give up on one of the, not give up on it, but let it deviate from time to time. So I think when you're kind of thinking about where have I deviated, um, making sure that you haven't lost all of your foundation is really important. And so if you have, it's like, go back to what that foundation started from and why it's there and then do little acts to bring that back into reality. When I was an athlete, I journaled a lot. I don't journal now. Um, but I do write down things or, or ideas or keywords that I try to hold myself accountable to. That's really interesting. And I, I am an advocate for introspection and reflecting on your values and journaling too, because I think it helps to put pen to paper to really process what's yeah. going on in there. And there was a time in my life where I really had to make some big decisions. And so what was interesting to me in that experience was that I wrote down all the reasons to do one option, let's say, and it was like full of like noise and negative things. And you could tell there was a lot of anger and hurt and burnout in there. And then in my other kind of page, I wrote why I should continue doing this activity. So it was actually about retiring or keeping on going. And so when I was skiing and so in my keep on going skiing, there was like four words. And in my retire bucket, it was full of, you know, all of these reasons to retire. And what was interesting is by writing them down, I realized actually the, the negative ones were just noise and the current emotions. They weren't actually what I believed and what I wanted. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize that until I had actually written them down and thought about them and seen them on paper. And so I think sometimes in all of our craziness or in our heads, you don't, you can't wait things equally or kind of look at them objectively but the moment you put them down on paper and you kind of take away some of the emotion from them you can say okay well is this really important and I think like nowadays like whether it's a walk in the morning it kind of gives me some space to clear my mind and take the emotion out of some of these things to make a real decision or a step forward absolutely and it does take self-control and patience but I do want to get on to your retirement but I think we should start with how you got into the sport before we get too ahead of ourselves so, Sounds good. what about skiing captivated you as a young girl? And how old were you when you began? Ski racing has always been part of my life, I think. I started when I was two and a half years old, um, I think, or maybe closer to three. It was that winter coming into my third year. Um, skiing has just been part of me. I don't remember my first time skiing, but I, sh I never remember a life without it. And so I think when I look back and when I ski now, I just feel utter freedom and bliss. Like it's like everything in my head just stops moving and I can be present and I feel free. Um, when I'm going down the mountain, it's just like this elation 
of yeah it's like freedom in the mountains like you get nature you get adrenaline mm. and I'm like smiling and I don't know I think that's how it was for me growing up like it was just this it's a mode of expression like some people have a, a paintbrush right and they right. paint on their canvas I had a ski hill and that was my mode of expression where I felt free and I felt myself and totally content that's beautiful and athletes have such certainty around what they want to achieve um, in their career from a young age, which is such a blessing in a way, but is not something that classmates and friends are always able to relate to and support. So how did you take a stand in your choices and who you were at such a young age, while many may not have understood your unique trajectory? That is a fantastic question. And I, I think probably one of the things that I, I had the most difficulty with growing up because people like in one sense you want to be that kid who's part of the group at school that's like going out and doing all these fun things and like there's the social pressure to be you know the in the in crowd and doing all the things that society's telling you should do and then in the other side you've got this like crazy dream right that just and growing up in fernie and in my circumstance just is, was not something that was realistic i would say and so People didn't really understand it. I think as I got better, people started to respect it, but I think they were started to respect it because I got better, not because they believed in me more. And so I constantly struggled with, this is something I really enjoy doing. I really don't know why I'm good at it, but I love it. And why should I not just keep going and trying to be better and in service of this goal or whatever it was against what am I missing out on People don't really understand what I'm going through. Like I had challenges even at school, like not having the support that even the hockey players would get because they didn't respect what I was doing. And so it was this constant challenge of almost like my identity. Like, did I want to be the person that was, you know, doing what all my friends and peers were doing? Or did I want to be this person that was on this bizarre trajectory of sport? And what did that even mean? And what was it in service of? Yeah, it was very difficult for me to balance. But I, I think at the end of the day, and this is probably a big influence of my parents, I always went for what was important to me. What was I passionate about? Because I, I somehow knew or they instilled in me, like all that other stuff will still be there when you're done. Mm-hmm. It's true, but it's hard to accept that when you do feel the immediate comparison of what am I missing out on? And wanting to, and not, and also not wanting to feel rushed to get there when you do retire. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and and t- and things change, and what's important to you changes. Like what I felt like I was missing out when I was sixteen and seventeen is not what I felt like I was missing out when I was thirty. And I did go back to school when I was thirty, so I sure as heck had an opportunity to feel that. And I was like, oh, that's not important to me. No anymore. frat parties for you uh, <laughs> at thirty. Um, but I do think that. I think people, it doesn't actually matter if you're in sport or whatever it is. I think that's just a big part of growing up as a teenager is like you're pulled in a ton of different directions. There's societal pressure. There's like you're getting tempted to do things. You're kind of testing limits and trying to figure out who you are. And in a way, sport helped me. So on a positive side, it was like something that I knew and I could control and I could relate to and that brought me joy and happiness so in a way that was a gift 
because there's a lot of kids that come through that part of their lives not having that. They don't have that direction or that focus. And so it's easy to deviate. It's easy to kind of lose your way. Mm-hmm. And so when I look back, it's, it's like that was just the most amazing gift was to have something that kept me grounded um, and true to something. And as you mentioned before, when you were 18, your dad was diagnosed with cancer and passed away soon after. How do you describe the impact of losing your father at such an impressionable time in your life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I often think about, obviously, the timing of his death and kind of the impact on me and my career. Who knows, you know, if he hadn't passed away at 18, whether I would have succeeded in sport or if I would have continued or if I would have been on a different path. It's kind of one of those things that was such a big part and like a crossroads in my life that maybe it gave me the courage and the push to just go for it that I wouldn't have had. Or maybe I would have still done it. I don't know. But I think in one sense at 18, I had learned a lot from him. and I had this amazing childhood with him and so much fun and we were like buddies. And so in some sense, it's like no one, not everyone gets that. So I got 18 years of it, mm-hmm. of, of this great relationship. And so that's kind of the, the approach I took with it, with his death, but it did trigger me to kind of think about what was important and, and we might get into this later, but it, it was basically because of his death that I, the community came together and supported me in, in service of my dreams. And that's been my driving force until, till this day. And so without that, I don't, I don't know what would have happened. And, and I often think, Oh, I wish you could see what I did. But then in the other sense, I think he knew. Yeah. Yeah. Because he had already given me the lessons. Okay. So I want to ask about that. What wisdom did your dad impart on you that at the time you didn't necessarily embrace or really understand but became clearer and more applicable with age? I think I realize it now more than I did in sport. Um, but his relentless kind of an openness and to kindness and empathy to all. Like he never judged people. And he treated everyone as equal. And I never really understood that until after he died and like listening to people talking about him and then looking at kind of the things that I, when I look back and reflect on his behaviors as I saw them, right? So I'm 18 and under. So the way you perceive things is quite different than when you're an adult, but he just was so open and supportive to everyone. It didn't matter who you were. Um, So I think that's an important, that was a really important lesson for me, that level of empathy. Um, It's something I strive for. I think empathy is one of the most important virtues that we should hold and and treating people equal. And then the other thing is his thirst for knowledge. So he never had a university education, but he was probably the smartest person I knew. He would like read the encyclopedia when him and my mom would play Trivial Pursuit, like they were the dream team. (laughs) And he's the one that I promised I would you know, if I went and did this ski career thing and chased my dreams, I'd go back and get an education. And so that was just understanding also that education and intelligence, there's book smart, but then there's like life smart. And he was life smart. And 
and that was something that was really important to me because I think in society we often judge people on being smart what with what their degree is yes but he kind of taught me that being smart is just so much more than that that's one facet of it but just having that thirst to learn and to grow whether it's through books or, or experience you should always have that and little did he know your life and education what that would have in store which we will get on to but that is I wonder if without that example if you would have pursued that unique path in your education so that's amazing to hear and nowadays where does your dad show up in your life um so we I have a foundation so we might talk about later um but basically he shows up every day in that and then I think he shows up in that my desire to learn and to grow and then also he shows up in make sure you like do things that you'd like to do and stay true to who you are and show kindness along the way. So as you said, the Fernie community really came together following his passing to support you and helped raise funds so that you could continue with your career. And specifically, Heiko and his family uh, generously donated so that you could buy equipment. And I'm wondering, did you begin to consider that had the community not come together that you may have ended your career then? Yeah, it was a, a very real decision. So I think there was two things. One was, so I'm an only child, um, and my mom just lost her husband. Is it right for me to just go off to the mountains and run away, basically, in chase of my dreams? So the first was like, not permission, but should I stay home and be the responsible daughter, or should I go and chase my dreams? And like, in my mind, I played with it a lot. My mom was like, you go, and everyone else is go. Um, and so I think that was the first thing that I had to come to terms with and accept. The second one was, we don't have a lot of money, so can I actually go and do this? Like, is it feasible? Like, should I be looking at a scholarship to get an education? So I had to actually think a lot about it. You know, it was a massive crossroads for me, but I think with the community and Linda and Heiko getting behind me, I just felt like, it was an opportunity missed if I didn't go for it because you would always wonder like what's a year, what's two years. And, and the irony of it is that it probably was, well, that wasn't probably, it was my healing. Like where, where better to heal than on a mountain doing what you love to do surrounded by amazing friends and coaches and all this sort of stuff. And, and so for me, it was like all of those things together, when I thought about them, there was just only one way, and that was to go for it. Yeah, And you certainly did. And with the support, yeah. you moved away to Calgary at 19 to pursue mm. your Olympic dream. And I'm wondering, how did your skiing or perspective about the sport change with such raw emotion and pain after this passing? So I think, it, in hindsight, you like to think that you knew exactly what you were doing in that moment, but I didn't. <laughs> I was like, I was in survival mode. I was a train wreck. I thank God for my friends and my coaches that kept me, you know, found laughter and humor, were a shoulder to cry on, were a forgiving for my like crazy emotions. I didn't know. I was in full survival mode for many years, I think, actually. 
And I think that skiing was like this thing I could focus on and I could control because everything else in my life I couldn't control. And so the skiing actually grounded me and I could focus on it. And then I could start dealing with all the other emotions that I had to go through. But it took, it took years. Honestly, I think it, it's not something that I consciously dealt with. Right. I probably, I consciously focused on skiing and then inevitably over time, because I realized ultimately that my performance in skiing had, was impacted by the death of my father and the support of the community, the good and the bad. And so over time, I had to bring that into my race plan and my mental state, the sports psychology around it. But it took a couple of years till I could actually do it in a productive way. Okay. Yeah. At what point did you realize that the Olympics were very much a possibility for you? It's interesting because the Olympics, one, I never thought I'd succeed at this. Like I, I did, I genuinely didn't understand why I was doing so well. And, and when I look back at it, I understand a little bit more, but I was always surprised. And so the Olympics don't happen to a girl from Fernie who like grew up on a small ski town with, you know, secondhand equipment and, you know, it just doesn't happen. And so Three for times, me, it was always by a bit surreal. I know it's all very strange to me uh, uh, and amazing when I look back, but I just never thought that that was in the cards. Like I was striving to win for sure. I like to pretend I'm not competitive, but I'm a hundred percent competitive. I wanted to win. Own it girl. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, but I never really thought about the Olympics per se, because I just, that was like this pipe dream. And so until I qualified, I probably never thought I was going to go. Um, and there was an opportunity. So Nagano was uh, the first Olympics I could have qualified for. And I didn't qualify. I was just shy of partially because of age. And it would have been like more of a development experience. And I think actually by that experience of me being close, but not quite making it was like, mm, now you want to make it. Yeah. Now that winning thing kind of gets into your under your skin you're like I, I want to go and so I'm sure the seed was was planted for the Salt Lake City Olympics so that was 2002 and I qualified in 2001 for them um, through my results on the World Cup but then I had two massive knee injuries and yeah. so I thought that that dream was done and then a miracle <laughs> happened and it wasn't so I did participate in Salt Lake City Olympics although I wouldn't say I was participating to win which is awful but it was amazing to kind of get to go to the Olympics and experience them. They're the least stressful in a way because I didn't, I knew I couldn't really win, but I got to experience them. So I think each Olympics kind of taught me something, but gave me more uh, fire. Okay. I want to talk more about the Olympics soon, but how did you, as the expectations mounted and you progressed further in the sport, how did you cultivate the intrinsic motivation that burned bright within you as a young girl? Or was it tainted in some way? Yeah, fantastic question. It, sometimes that flame was like roaring and sometimes it was nearly out. And I think, I guess that's the life of most athletes. It's not always hunky-dory and a picture of perfection and you're like just motivated, inspired. There's a lot of ups and downs. There's a lot of doubt. There's a lot of challenges um but i think what is important is that even when your flame is really low if you're doing it for the right reasons the flame won't go out 
And so if you are doing it because you, well, for me, if I loved it and I felt like I was having impact and I felt like there was more to achieve, like, although the flame was nearly out and I was ready to walk away, I never did. And so I think that's what's really important because it is inevitable that flame changes. And yeah. and the, the challenges around what drives that flame change when you're young and I call it naive, but not in a bad way. Like being naive is actually a blessing. What stokes your fire is different than when you're 13 years on the national team and you know all the politics and you know all the motivations and you know the business behind it. You know, Does that stoke your fire? No, not so much. So you have to think about what what does stoke your fire? Why are you here? What has changed versus when you're 22 versus when you're 30? Yeah. And so I think it's really important to kind of acknowledge that and, and be kind to yourself because you have, as you change as a human, like as a person, you change as an athlete, you get more experience. Um, experience can be a gift, but it can also be a burden because you lose your naivety. And then I think for me, also with skiing in a fear sport, when I was young, it's like you go out of the gate and you just go straight for it. There's no consequence, this is great. But as you get older and you've had the injuries and you've had the setbacks, you're like, oh, last time I did that, that didn't go so well. So um, do I wanna do that again? So you have to kind of figure out how to be fast and good and manage fear. Yeah, and you, you said that after experiencing such injuries and the knee surgery and all of that, you had to make the shift in mindset from winning without fear to winning knowing the consequences. How did this change your mental side of the sport and also the consequential performance? Yeah, so I think this was probably one of my biggest challenges in life. And it took me, I would say, three years to nail it. Okay. Um, it took a long time. And there was like little glimpses of hope in the middle in those three years and that's why I continued and that's why I, I kept going. But to, to finally, I don't know if I ever mastered fear. I mastered fear more than I mastered performance anxiety. Okay. <laughs> um, but you basically have to take it a little bit more strategically. So when you're young or when before you have fear, you just kind of go out and you're, it's like reckless abandonment and that's what winning is. But when you have fear, you have to say, okay, so where in a course am I going to put it on the edge? Because you have to put it on the edge to win, but you don't have to put it on the edge from the start to the finish. So it's about understanding your skills, understanding a course um, and where those opportunities are. And also like on some days, it's just not the day. The weather could be bad. Like you don't want to risk your life. And so understanding that there's a bigger picture, I think is really important. But that took a long time because you have this little gremlin on one side of your shoulder that's like, hey, anything but winning is sucks and you don't like it and you're not gonna get to do this sport forever if you keep sucking. And then the other <laughs> side is like, hey, idiot, last time you did this, that didn't work out so swell, now did right. it? So let's just take it easy, let's be smart. And, and so it's like, you had to find, I had to find that balance between the two, even within a race of those two yeah. little gremlins. And so it just, I think it takes maturity. I think it takes time to understand what your skills are. And also you have to ski differently. Like I had to ski differently because it was more technical, technical. That's a new word. It's technical and tactical. Together. I like that. Let's tactical. keep it technical um, versus just 
going for it. So how did you navigate the conversation between these two gremlins and find the balance between responsible caution in such a dangerous sport, but also in channeling the fearlessness that can be so powerful and liberating? Yeah, there was a, my little savior, Diana McNabb. So I did not do this alone. This was not done alone. Um, so she was my sports psychologist throughout all of my career. And she was just, she's this amazing human being that helped me and guided me along the way and challenged me both as an athlete and as a person to kind of really be introspective and understand kind of my strengths and my weaknesses. I couldn't have done it without her. So she was the one who held me accountable. She was the one who challenged me. Um, she gave me a lot of tools to deal with performance on the day. We talked about it a lot. So she was someone that was absolutely fundamental in that development. And then my coaches, ultimately, mm -hmm. and having those open conversations with your coaches are, one, very difficult, yes. but two, absolutely critical. Because as an athlete, you have blinders on because yes. you just see yourself. Like, and so they are these objective inputters who you should trust and who should be able to motivate you and challenge you at the right time. And so I think you have to have that relationship with a coach to overcome these things. I don't think you can do it alone. And maybe that's just me, but I needed a team. I've always needed a team. It's an individual sport, but by no means have I accomplished any of it alone. Yeah, it, a team is so, so critical. And it shows that it's more than just the, the individual. Even in ice dance, I have my partner, mm -hmm. but there's such, there's a large network and nothing's possible without the collaborative effort, right? Yeah, exactly. And people don't see that because they just often see, so for you, they see you and your partner on the ice and they don't really understand the team behind it. There's a team behind all of us. Yes. All great things have a team. You're listening to The Lila Joe Show. You competed in three Olympics, as I said, Salt Lake City, Torino, and Vancouver. Which was your favorite? I think, so I don't have kids, but I'm going to play the kid card. I think as a parent, it's like, you can't say you have favorites. Um, so <laughs> I, uh, no, I, Vancouver, it's like the honor to be able to compete in your own country for your country mm -hmm. in front of your friends and your family. There is no greater honor as an athlete and as a Canadian. Oh. Equally, it was the hardest time in my life, both personally and as an athlete, like the pressure and the expectation and the desire to succeed nearly crippled me. And so, although it was my favorite, it was my hardest. And why nearly crippled you? What was the saving grace? My love of sport, my love of skiing saved me in the end of the day. Because I think what happens is like, you get so caught up on, I must win, that you deviate from your guiding light. You kind of lose the whole like, why am I here? What am I doing? It's all in service of winning and making people proud. And it's for me as an athlete, I felt it was the only way I could thank everybody. I thought being on a podium was my way to thank people. And at the end of the day, you know, I laid it on the line and I failed, but I walked away and I've been able to do some great things from that. And I still love skiing. And to me, that is like, the most important thing. So skiing saved me, nearly killed me, but it ultimately saved me. And it's such a privilege to compete at three Olympics. So what is something that you learned from 
your first and second that would have given you an advantage over first-time Olympians at the latter two? So I think the first time, your first time at your Olympics is like the the dazzle and the lights and it's like Jazz amazing. Hands. It's a show and it's crazy and you've got all these amazing athletes and this world watching you and it's just like deer in the headlights. Oh my God, this is crazy. I'm part of this. I'm representing my country. Like, this is amazing. So that to me was the first one. The second one was like, okay, you had that. Now let's just focus on delivering and, and getting down to business. And so for me, the second one was, I was not impacted as much by the bedazzle of it all. Unfortunately with skiing, because being in the mountains and with in Torino, for example, was where the main part of the Olympics was being held. We were in the mountains and almost very removed from it. And then like in Vancouver, we didn't even stay in Olympic Village. We were consciously removed from Olympic Village and stuff because of the distraction. So in a way, you live in this really surreal bubble. And then like from your house to getting to the lift, to getting to, you're in this like corridor. Everything is like you're like this little, I don't know, shepherded along these corridors, which are there to kind of protect you from getting distracted, but it also protects you from even realizing you're at the Olympics. Mm. And so I think by the time I got to Vancouver, I was like, don't forget to look around and enjoy that you're actually at the Olympics. Like the second one, I was like, tunnel vision, must perform. In a tunnel. You know, go, go, go. Yeah. Literally. And then in Vancouver, I was like, whoa, whoa. Okay, so don't like be dazzled by the lights. Don't just take a tunnel, try and combine the two. Whoa, it's so, it's so special to have the comparison between the first and second and then to be able to draw from that what worked best and what was most fulfilling to then have your final hurrah in front of a home crowd. Yeah. That's amazing. And Emily, you had a vision not only within the sport but beyond skiing, which you said allowed you to feel a little less guilty about being an athlete and to feel a little more empowered because you knew that this was just one part of your life. Why did you mm-hmm. feel guilty being an athlete? I don't really know. I think it's just something I felt. It, I think part of it is societal in a, in a way like, why do I get to go and do what I love to do when everyone else is checking into a job at eight o'clock or nine o'clock? And, you know, why do I get to do this? Shouldn't I be having a bigger impact? Shouldn't I be doing something that makes a difference? I don't know where it came from, but I definitely felt it. I also think like being an athlete, you are, you inevitably have to be selfish because you're trying to win against all these other people that are trying to win. And it's not in my personality. It's not something I, that sits comfortably with me and, and with a lot of people. It's not to say that a lot any athlete is selfish or sits in that place comfortably. But it's a choice that you make and it's a sacrifice that you make because you need to have that some level of selfishness to do it. And so for me, it was like that constant battle in my, my brain or my head, like, is, is this something I, that I really believe in and I want to do? And, and then should I not be doing something more? Mm. And I still struggle with that, actually. I always feel like I've been given this amazing life and these amazing opportunities. So am I making them, am I using that opportunity and having a big enough impact instead of throwing this gift away? Like, make a difference. It's kind of something that's always driven me. This was clearly one of your guiding lights and your benevolence has always been so evident, especially 
when you started the Emily Bryden Youth Foundation in 2006 mm-hmm. while still competing. So for everyone listening, what is the mission of your foundation? So the Emily Bryden Youth Foundation is about supporting youth in the Elk Valley, so for any Elk friends forward, through sports, arts, and education. So basically, just giving kids an opportunity to experience things, to chase their dreams. It's about giving a kids a platform to step from and taking a chance on them. Some kids that we help, no one's ever believed in them before. Some of the kids that we help would never get to experience a sport or an activity because they just don't have the funds. And some of them have dreams like I did and they just don't have the funds to support that dream. And so it's really about enabling and empowering youth through whatever channel inspires them. Well, it's making me emotional. It's it's so it's heartbreaking that these people have or these kids have these dreams and then no support and it really puts it all in perspective and it's incredible the work mm-hmm. that you're doing. So, Emily, Thank who you. gave you the opportunity or permission to chase your dreams? My parents. 100%. So, we often joke about my mom and I joke about this a lot and I don't think I fully understood it or appreciated it as a kid, but they never were the parents that forced me to do anything or lived vicariously through me, but they supported me every step of the way through the good and the bad. And they were up there like volunteering. And when people would, you know, say negative things about my abilities or they never told me or they they really protected me and they always empowered me to just go. And as long as I was having fun, they would move walls so that I could continue it. And so I think that was the ultimate approval or permission to just follow them. And and I think that they taught me through that, that there's gonna be a lot of naysayers and a lot of people who wanna beat you down, either because they wanna step on you and stand on you and, and like jump from you, or because they just don't believe in you. But that's just one person. It's really up to you whether you believe in yourself. Yes. And so I think they gave me that permission. Upon stepping away from the sport you wrote, I was determined to look forward and to shake off my identity as an athlete just enough to be able to write my next chapter freely. What about your athlete identity did you feel would potentially limit you in writing this new chapter? So I think the the athlete identity is one that I struggle with because... I think that there's so much potential with it. And we need to find a way that athletes can bring all the greatness that they learn, develop, evolve into their next chapter and that everyone has a next chapter. But I didn't feel that that existed when I retired. And I think I was worried that people would like me, give me opportunity or put me in a box maybe even because I was an athlete. I wanted like to prove myself in a totally new capacity. And I didn't want to feel like I was getting these opportunities because I happened to be a a ski racer for Canada. I wanted to get there on my own merit. Yes. But I do think that we miss in general amazing opportunities with athletes because we do not support them into that next phase and that next chapter. Like it took me a while to really even understand the skills and the unique set of life experiences that will forever differentiate me and any other athlete that that no one else has 
yes. that we got through sport. And there's other people who have differentiating life experiences, but I think that we forget that you can transfer a lot that you get from sport into the world. But I didn't want to be, I didn't want it to be based on my name. I wanted it to be based on what I could deliver or, or how I would show up. And, and it, it was always really important to me to, and maybe it's a test also, like I've always liked to test myself. And, and so for, for me, it was, it was a choice, a conscious choice. I didn't want to do something in skiing because one, I wanted to love skiing and be able to do it because I chose to do it. But I also wanted to not just go into something that I felt people want to assume that I would do, but also just give it that me that opportunity because of my name. Yeah. So how did you discover who you were as Emily and not Emily the ski racer? I think a big part of it was making the choice. So I alluded to it a bit before, but I did one year at the University of Calgary when I retired and it was incredibly challenging from a personal perspective because here I was 30 years old going back to school at a very different place in my life than my college buddies, you know? And 17 so years old. my best friend was the one who was like, you should just get your MBA. And anyways, that started me on a trajectory. Yeah. Um, which landed me in London at Imperial Business School, which is where I discovered myself. Because I went there as Emily, not Emily the skier or Emily the Olympian. I just went as Emily and it was hard. And I spent probably the first three months not telling anyone my background because I was still trying to figure out like how how was I going to fit into these this group of really smart people and yeah. they all have these crazy backgrounds and all of this self doubt and and then I was also in survival mode because it was hard, but through that I actually started to discover myself like what are my skills what what can I contribute to a conversation that no one else can based on my experiences and so Imperial is kind of where I I blossomed into Emily. So before this blossoming, I want you to tell me what was going through your head when you were sitting in class as a 30 year old Olympian among 17 year olds. <laughs> it was, it was hard. <laughs> um, especially when they would ask me for my autograph and I was like, they did. That's, that's the old Emily. That's, that's not going to happen. Oh um, it was a dose of humble pie. It was what it was. <laughs> and it made me realize, like, for me, I was there to learn. And for a lot of the people that I was do, doing projects with or interacting with, it was like, university is an experience. It's like a life experience. You're there to learn 100%. But it's also about, like, living on your own for the first time and developing a network of friends and kind of figuring out who you are as a person. And I was like, I'm just not there yet. Some of them would be like, oh, you come into the local, it's like $1 beer tonight. Are you coming? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm just going to go back to my condo and drive my car and have a really bougie glass of wine. Like, you know, we're just in a very different <laughs> phase in our life. And so it was interesting to me to make sure that I got out of it what I wanted to get out of it, but also understand I had to work in a team with a lot of these people on projects. And yeah, it was, it was quite hard. Mm. There's one quote that I'd love to read and ask you about. One of my favorite modern day poets, Cleo Wade, wrote... Remember, life is bigger than the boxes we check along the way. And as athletes, we are wired to identify what needs to be done and work relentlessly to achieve that. And upon retiring, you went to check the box of, okay, now I need to get my undergraduate degree, only to find that it wasn't what you craved. 
So what gave you the courage to just tear up this checklist and carve a wild and adventurous path seeking the fulfillment that you desired? Yeah, I, I like that quote. It's true. We are focused on goals and ticking boxes. And I do it today to my detriment, actually. It is so ingrained in me. But it was my best friend, Vanda, um, who, was, who really challenged me to think outside that box and say, why do you have to tick that box? Why can't you just go and do what you really want to do? So she was someone who challenged me. She's the one that kind of triggered me to think differently. And then my mentors, I have a really great group of mentors that one supported me and validated it and kind of pushed me to like think differently. Like, yeah, go for it. Why wouldn't you do this? Why you don't need to tick the boxes. And it was interesting. There are some people in my, in my circle who were like, no, you must have an undergrad. And it's like, you actually learn the people who are the, are very conservative and are the box tickers mm -hmm. and that you must do all of these things in service of said goal. And then you realize who the people are in your network and part of your team that are willing to look outside the box and kind of challenge you. And it kind of goes back to your team, um, whether it's your mentors and your friends, you need to have diverse sets of people in them that hold you accountable and push you in different ways. So how does one go about getting an MBA without an undergraduate degree? How did you do I this? Don't, I don't know. Like, I was... I I don't know. So it was all a bit crazy to me that this worked out. And I have to give full credit to Imperial. Like they have a program actually now that they have, and I guess they did back then, but they didn't really use it a lot. So I was one of their first kind of intakes for this program, non-traditional backgrounds. They have two spots every year that they give to non-traditional backgrounds. And that's how I got in. Amazing. So. Yeah, so I think universities and colleges are looking differently at non-conventional backgrounds as a way to diversify. So when we think about diversification, you know, generally we think of like female, male, or, you know, what is your education? And Imperial was really at the forefront in thinking about diversity of life experiences. And so that's how I got in was under that, that umbrella spot. I did not know that they had it. That's what is crazy about all of this is that I just went and looked at MBA programs that were interesting and inspiring in places I wanted to live. And I just cold called and I had to do two like mini dissertations and I had to do a math exam and I had to do the GMAT. Like I, I had to work my little tush off to get in, but the fact that they were willing to have that first conversation is a true testament to that college. And, I will be forever grateful to them. They, they believed in me and my background before I did. Also, it just shows that with these cold calls, the answer is no unless you ask. It's just going to be no. And yeah, who knows? You like just you, assume a no. Yeah. But why not ask? Why not try? So exactly. I want to know about your first day at the MBA. What did this morning look like for you? And did you use any pre-competition rituals to get you in the zone? Oh my, you, honestly, that first three months is a blur. <laughs> I was so nervous, like probably more nervous than standing on top of a ski race. No because way. Because at least in the top of a ski race, I had all the tools. I'd been training. I knew exactly what to do. When I was going to my first day at Imperial, I was like, I don't know anything. I don't know any of these people. 
I was like doing all this calculus pre-work. I was like, oh my gosh, I don't have any of this background. Like I was totally freaking out. The only thing I was, I knew was that I would survive because I survived, I'm a survivor. And I had the work ethic to get through it. How I was gonna get through it, no idea. Mm -mm. I was like, just have to go one day at a time, work your butt off. That's the thing that I knew I could differentiate myself on against others is like, I can work harder. Like, I, I just know I can work harder and smarter because I think one of the things that teaches you as an athlete, like there's a lot of kids, kids, peers, some of my peers in, in Imperial could study for 15 hours, but is that really productive? No, you can't. That's just physically not possible. But because time management is so important in life as an athlete, I, I was able to allocate time and stay balanced and stay on track and not procrastinate much better than a lot of my peers. And I, I knew that. And in feeling intimidated and like you paled in comparison to the class of managers, consultants, and analysts, what gave you the courage to take your place in the classroom? And what did you have to surrender the most in this experience? Gosh, that's a great question. Again, very good questions. Um, so I think, so I can talk forever, as you will know, and uh, full of opinions. And I was silent for my first like two months at school uh, during the MBA because I was just trying to figure it out. And so that was like a big indication of, you know, how out of my depth I was. And I think ultimately over time, what gave me the confidence to speak out was like my friend network. So slowly I got to know people and tell my story and that gave me confidence and they supported me and, and I wasn't failing and, you know, like I was doing okay. And I think that just, that was about relationships and getting comfortable and feeling like I had a place. The thing that I had to come to terms with is that I'm going to ask a lot of stupid questions. I'm never going to be the smartest in this room because that's just not been my path. And when I say smart, I mean like book smart. So I, I'm probably smarter in a lot of other ways. And that it was okay to kind of have an opinion that was different, like an opinion that wasn't based on what I learned in my undergrad or what I learned at my last corporate job, but it was an experience based on hurling myself down a mountain and how that would add value to a conversation or a perspective or working and live, like when I say work, I mean ski working. In Like I lived globally for 13 years. I traveled to so many different countries and interacted culturally with different people and learning about feedback and communication and leadership and all of these things. I was like, oh my gosh, I've got a plethora of them. Mm -hmm. And not everybody has that. And so figuring out part of my experience and how it would add value to a conversation and being okay that people might judge it. So there's, it's that, I guess, self-confidence yeah. is a big one. And with all of this life experience and exploring so many different realms, is there a perspective that you've gained since retirement that you would invite people like me who are still in the sport to consider that you were blind to as an athlete? Yeah, I, this is my passion is to make athletes more um, aware of the amazing skills that they're developing as an athlete today that will teach them, guide them, direct them for the rest of their lives. And so 
I think when you're an athlete, you're, you're it's the blinders. Like you're so focused on your goal of that moment. Hold on, you might want to. My dog's barking. I'm just gonna shut my door. Um, okay. So you're so focused on like the service of your goals and the service of achieving excellence in sport. You don't really think about all the, let's say, softer skills that go in to achieving them that you need, like communication. So think about you communicating with your partner all the time and how transparent you have to be, honest and open, constructive. Like those are skills that will take you far beyond sport that a lot of people do not have in their, in, let's call it the corporate world. Leadership, like understanding that you can lead without, like there's informal leadership and formal leadership. I think in the corporate world, we think about you, to be a leader, you have to be a manager. Absolutely not. Everyone can lead. You should lead from the bottom up actually. And so things like that and time management I've talked about and tenacity and understanding what challenges are and overcoming them and they don't debilitate you. They just make you think differently about how you're gonna overcome something. I think that there's a whole piece around like goals and accountability and how you show up and that you don't learn that in a textbook and it becomes part of you and you should own that and treasure that. And no one told told me any of these things and I want athletes to know that they are, they're doing a life in, or a, a course in life right now that will guide them, whatever. If you wanna be an entrepreneur, if you wanna go into the corporate world, whatever it is that you wanna do after sports, those things don't retire with you. They actually are your platform for your next chapter. Oh, wow. Well, thank you for that and it's so, valuable to hear this because I'm sure if there's any other athletes listening it's so hard not to feel like you're in a rush and that you're Mm. missing out on garnering all these skills that you need for your career after the sport where we're actually developing these really unique skills that others don't get the chance to to work on at such a young age Um, so thank you for for sharing that since completing your MBA, you've worked for the energy giant BP, which brought you to live in Shanghai, San Francisco, London, where we had dinner a few times, mm-hmm. and now Chicago. What was your most memorable moment from your travels with BP? I am, once again, thankful to BP for these awesome opportunities. Like, when I hear you talking about them, I'm like, is this real? Like, I've, I've had such a great experience with the company. But living in China, by far, is the most rewarding, stretching, challenging life experience I've had. And one that I will use and play on and pull from forever. Um, It was surprising to me. I, I made a very rash decision to go there spontaneously, not knowing a soul. Oh my gosh. But I knew it because the company would support me but it opened my eyes to things that I didn't even know I had my eyes closed to. Like what? Culture. So how I'm structured to work and communicate and succeed is, you know, that's all I've ever known. And then you get put in a country like China and you're like, well, that that's different. You know, they're incredibly smart people and they're very good at thinking logically. And so it's about understanding how different cultures and people work and that there's greatness in both of them. And then, so that's one thing that I learned a ton there, communication style and hierarchy. 
we're a flat organization. I have open conversations above me and below me in, in business. In the Asian culture, that is not how it works. Like hierarchy is very important. Respect is very important for your elders. Like you don't go question something that your boss says. I question what my boss says all the time. So how do I adapt my communication style to be respectful of a culture that I'm visiting? And it would test also your ability to be flexible and adapt and to be open-minded to new strategies and ways of viewing things. And wasn't there a Vespa accident? Oh, there was a Vespa accident. But you weren't hurt, were you? It's nice that you reminded me of that. Yeah, and unfortunately, the Vespa ended up worse than I did. Um, So this guy on a Vespa, I was like coming out of my house, and I was like going across the street to a Starbucks, and I don't know what happened because there's Vespas everywhere. There's no right, left side of the road. And anyways, this Vespa was coming in hot with like big jugs of water, like those big jugs you see in the office. Luckily, there was no water in them, but basically he was stacked high with these jugs of water and he, so he was coming straight for me and then he slammed on the brakes. The vest, the hit me, my, hit my leg. The water bottles went everywhere and he was on the ground. The vest was on the ground and I was standing and I was like, how did... Oh my God, like, this is really bad. Like, do I run? So he was so embarrassed. So he got up and gathered his water bottles. I was so embarrassed because I had just taken down a Vespa. So I ran into Starbucks. I'm like, don't tell anyone. Get your coffee, go. (laughs) Anyways, so I had a good little scar on my leg. And I went to the office and I was like, do I tell people? (laughs) Well, it's a great story to tell. It's a great dinner party conversation. Yeah. I love that one. Oh, man. And what is the common thread that underlies all of your various pursuits and that drives you to seek new challenges in your life? I hope for my whole life that I have a thirst to learn and to grow and to evolve and to experience new things. I never, ever, ever, ever want to be complacent. And I want to have impact wherever I go. That's a great driving force and something I really admire and, and hope to strive to embody myself. And you certainly set an amazing example in that. And you once Thank told you. me that you never stop being an athlete, but rather you can pursue this role in a variety of life chapters. How do you show up as an athlete in your life right now? Yeah, being an athlete is... Um... It's in you for life, whether you like it or not. So I am super great at denial sometimes. I'm like, I'm not competitive anymore. I'm just like a weekend warrior or I'm just like, you know, Joe Schmo. And then you're like, "Mm -mm, it's in you for life. So whether you like it or not, just embrace it. That would be my guidance and advice. One of the things that I notice from my life as an athlete is the ability and willingness to take risks. And so I think being an athlete, you, everything is about risk and reward. And I think... You learn how to fail and get back up. So I say failure and risk is the same. And I don't see failure as a bad thing. And I don't see risk as a bad thing. And I think that's different because a lot of people who haven't experienced sport probably do. So I think your ability and willingness to take on a risk that may result in a failure is very different as an athlete. And so I make life choices on a different risk scale than other people. And because of that, I had amazing experiences. Like I think that's, I went to China I, you know, I went and did my MBA. I make life choices based on my willingness to kind of take on risk with a different lens, which is amazing, which is great. And so that's something that is 
in me for life and I hope it never leaves. And then I think the ability to take on new things and adapt and be flexible. Like I think in skiing, like you had to be so adaptable, whether it's like weather conditions or whether it's like injuries or fear, all these things, you have to be so flexible in how you execute something. That's the same in, in business or what I do now. It's like someone can tell you to do this, but it's gonna change a gazillion times along the way. And so having that ability to be flexible and nimble becomes critical. Mm. And it's definitely something from being an athlete that shows up every day in my life. You speak of your belief that life is a series of mountain peaks. You say each one is different from the last and each is unique in its own way. Yet fundamentally, they are all underpinned by the same skills, values, behaviors, and passion. Sometimes you just need an equipment change. Emily, what mountain peak are you on in your life right now? So it's interesting because we're in this crazy time right now. Yes. Um, this pandemic time and time of different movements that are oh, long overdue and elections and violence and I don't know, energy transition, like let's be sustainable. Like there's just so much going on. So I feel like I'm actually in a valley Okay. and it's not in a bad way. I, like, I think you need valleys, yes. but I feel like this next mountain is going to be a big one and I'm super excited for it. I don't, I'm still in the same mountain range as my other peaks, but I feel like I'm at the start of a new mountain. And what, what heights do you hope to climb to next? I'm going to climb as high as I need to climb. I don't, I don't know. Cause I don't know what the future is going to hold, but I'm willing to take the climb. There's something exciting about that as a risk taker. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And and I think often that we're so fixated and this is one of the challenges is like, I'm used to climbing, knowing what my goal is. So yeah, I'm going to climb a 3000 foot meter, whatever Mm -hmm. mountain, but actually maybe that doesn't matter this time. Just climb until you don't need to climb anymore until you've achieved your goal along the way and Mm -hmm. then take it as the journey opposed to just making sure you get to the top. And there's a, the saying that is, I think, overused a little bit, but enjoy the journey. But part of enjoying the journey is being willing to say, okay, maybe that it's just actually, there's going to be a, a false summit, right? So you're up on, you're walking up and then you think you're at the top, but no, you're going to go down a bit, but actually it's in service to something bigger. And so um, if you've only focused on the top peak, you might miss the opportunity of that false summit. And so I think re- I'm really trying to like in, be present and understand that I'm on a long climb right now but also being open to the flexibility of that climb and given the the current climate and everything that's so uncertain and and dark at times I think it's really important to have a positive vision for the future so I always have my guests tell me about their ideal life five years from now so what are you doing who are you with and where are you very timely questions I'm trying to answer them myself right now so I don't have an answer okay Um, but what I do have is like what I'm working towards. And so I want to have a life that has impact and is making a difference. I want to have a life that is balanced between work and my personal life. And I want to be surrounded by people I love and care about, and I'm not willing to sacrifice on any of them. That's a great vision to have. And you seem very set as well in your, in the standards that you have and the quality that you want in your life, which I think is amazing. Now it's time to cool down. 
That was our tough workout for the day. <laughs> what are you currently mastering? Slowing down. I, since I've been in Fernie for four months, um, I've, I walk with my mom every day. I don't walk. I'm not a walker. I'm a hiker. I'm a runner. I'm a biker. I do everything fast. I'm walking. And I'm like trying to take a moment to like look at trees and animal footprints, mostly so I don't get attacked by the bear. But yep. it's, it, I'm really, really trying to like slow down and take a moment and just be really present because my whole life I'm in fast forward on a high speed train going somewhere that's really important. And for the first time in my life, I have this opportunity to really just slow down and kind of mm. walk beside the train tracks. And it's so rare. What is yeah. a hidden gem from your time living in Shanghai that you recommend people visit or eat at or anything like that? Uh, so the Yangshou province is amazing. It's quintessential China. It's like the river amongst the big, it almost looks like fjords, but it's just magical. I would recommend anyone going there. What is your favorite quote? I have a lot of quotes that resonate with me, but ultimately my favorite one is, I wrote it down actually, be the change you want to see in the world. Like show up, be, be like for me, it's like we talk a lot. We need more action in this world. Yes. So be that change. What do you appreciate the most in your life right now? This moment of calm and to be with my mom. Mm -hmm. And what excites you the most right now? The world is changing. Whether it's energy, whether it's how we value what's important in our life, it's changing. And I think it's the right change. It's long overdue, but it's super exciting. And final question, what is your number one book recommendation? So I love books, um, but I never remember them. Like I read them and then I'm like, ah, what was my favorite book? So I was thinking about this and I'm going to tell you the last four books that I've read. Okay. Uh, that I liked. Great. That, that had impact on me. So Educated was, I really enjoyed that book. Um, Becoming oh, yes. by Michelle Obama. Amazing. How to Be an Anti-Racist. Most difficult book I've ever read was really important. And then I'm reading the most difficult book. It's called Tom Jones. It's like a historical book that you, like an old English literature book. It's it written in, you know, in the 17, 1800s. But I like to challenge myself with like current reading, like modern English literature, history, Nonfiction um, and fiction, and then the last one is the Saya or Sia Khaleesi. He's the the South African first black captain of the South African rugby team. Um, oh, I just read a biography on him, and awesome, very okay. inspiring wow. person. So many recommendations, and I have a tradition on my show where I give the guest the book that was recommended by my previous guest. Oh dear! So I've really messed up your future well, guest. Sorry. No, I just have a few. I'll, I'll really recommend what I think is most fitting for my future guest, but you have a book from my previous guest called The Slight Edge by Jeff Olson. Oh. I don't, okay. Have you heard of it? No. Okay, it's amazing. I think it will really resonate with you and something to do during these times, and I really hope that you enjoy that book. 
I think as an athlete, awesome. it will be, be very fitting. But Emily, awesome. I wanted to thank you so much for your time and for such an enlightening conversation. And your perspective is so unique and evolved and my eyes have been open to so many different things. So thank you so much. No, thank you. You're, it was very well thought out questions that challenged me. So thank you for taking the time and understanding and listening and prodding and asking awesome questions. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Emily. I'm Lila and you've been listening to The Lila Joe Show. You can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter. If you haven't yet, head over to Apple Podcast and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next time for another episode. Thanks for listening.